The lectionary appoints readings for each Sunday of the year. The gospel reading for the second Sunday of Advent had John the Baptist proclaiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah who has come to make all things right. Informed by the glorious promises of scripture, John has high expectations of Jesus. In the gospel reading for this, the third Sunday of Advent, we see that those expectations are not being met. As a result, John is mired in disillusion and doubt. We may as well be in a similar situation, for Christmas promises us things that have not been borne out in reality. How will Jesus address John's doubts, our doubts? The fourth reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 2 to 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receives their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Here ends the fourth reading. So we remain standing, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us. We'd ask now that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach us, and that you being known and glorified would be our first, our only concern. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? Are you the one, or should we look for another? Once again, the lectionary invites John the Baptist into our preparations for Christmas. He comes with an unsettling question. Are you the one, or should we look for another? We've been singing carols, reading scriptures that affirm that Jesus brings joy, glad tidings, peace over all the earth, a rolling back of sin and sorrow. We find our spirits lifted, our hearts turned to worship, and John's question drops with a dull thud. Are you the one, or should we look for another? My own faith has been deeply formed by my relationship with Messianic Jews, and they would often tell me stories of sharing of Messiah Jesus with Jewish friends and family members who would respond, really? 
Messiah was meant to wipe everything that mars God's good creation from the earth and in its place, shalom, full flourishing in every aspect of life. I don't see that. Jesus cannot be our Messiah. Are you the one or should we look for another? It's a very contemporary question, is it not? Very much along the lines of how can there be a good and loving God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? I would suspect that there are traces of such doubt in every single one of our hearts. We look out at our world, we look at the state of our lives, and we wonder, are you the one or should we look for another? John's doubt is easily understandable. Last week, we heard his affirmation of Jesus. This is the strong one, the mighty one, the one that is greater than me. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. His axe is at the tree. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. The righteous will be filled with the Spirit, healed, restored, forgiven. The unrighteous will be consumed with fire. But now he's heard what Jesus has been doing. He's been spending time with the unrighteous, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. And it is they who are being welcomed into the kingdom. They who are being healed, restored, forgiven. They who are being touched with the Spirit. Where is the fire? Where is the wrath of God? Where is the cleansing of the earth of everything that is wrong with it? John's doubt arises out of his theological framework of what Messiah was meant to do. And Jesus has sorely disappointed him. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? Not only theological, John's doubts are deeply personal. He's in prison. He's probably been there for about a year. Why? Well, John was passionate for justice and had absolutely no fear in calling anyone out. He called out the religious leaders who were misleading the people, calling them children of Satan. He called out the Roman soldiers on their extortion, tax collectors on fraud, the wealthy on their lack of concern for the poor. But what lands him in prison? Well, King Herod makes a trip to Rome to visit his brother Philip, and while there, he takes a liking to Philip's wife, seduces her, goes home, dismisses his own wife, and marries his sister-in-law. And John the Baptist calls him out on it, denounces him. And there's only often two ways we respond to the conviction of sin. Either we'll deal with it or we'll silence it. And Herod chooses the latter. He throws John in the palace prison. You can imagine the thoughts that would be streaming through John's head. God, is this any way to treat your messenger? I've been committed to your truth, committed to justice. I can hear the drunken debauchery above me in the palace. Where is the axe? Where is your judgment upon unjust rulers? Where? Are you the one? Or should we look for another? 
It was Daryl Johnson who said that underneath almost all theological anguish and doubt is personal hurt. Right? Well, we'll argue about whether or not Jesus still heals, not because there's not evidence for it, there is, but what about me? What about the one that I love? We'll argue about the breadth of God's sovereignty, not because we cannot see evidence for God's work in the world, there is, but we don't see the evidence in the situation that holds our attention. We'll argue about the fullness of the joy that the gospel brings, not because we cannot see the joy in them, but because we cannot see the joy in us. Underneath almost all theological anguish and doubt is personal hurt. Are you the one, or should we look for another? How does Jesus answer John's question, our question? First blush, it seems completely unsatisfying, doesn't it? Because all he really tells John is what he already knows. Go back and tell John what you see and hear. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lepers cleanse, the poor have good news preached to them. Nothing new. But how Jesus says it is deeply instructive. He's wording it in such a way as to point to key passages in Isaiah that describe what Messiah's reign looks like. Except, he omits all reference to judgment. There are threads of God's judgment all the way through the book of Isaiah, but Jesus mentions none of them. That's wonderful, we might think. That's a very modern Jesus. All love, no judgment. But for the world to be made new, there must be judgment. There must be a removal of everything that is wrong with the world. And a God who did not have a settled disposition against evil and injustice would neither be good, nor loving, nor worthy of our worship. Jesus spoke about judgment more than any other person in the New Testament. But not here not here. Now, what would that response with its deliberate omission of judgment communicate to John? You see, John expected Jesus to bring both the Holy Spirit and fire, to bring healing and restoration and an axe, to cut away evil and injustice right now, right then, right away. I think Jesus is responding in the way that he does with the language of Isaiah to say, I am the one. You can see very clearly that I am the one. And there will be fire, there will be an axe, there will be a purging of everything that is wrong with the world, but not yet. Not now. This is not the end. This is only the beginning of the end. Now is the time for the work and power of the Spirit. Now is the time for the world to know me, to receive me, to welcome me as King. For the last line that he speaks to John is incredibly instructive. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. He's pointing John and and us in our doubts to himself. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now, why would you tell someone not to be offended? 
when you say or when someone else says, well, I don't want you to be offended, but you know that the next thing that's going to come out of their mouth is going to be offensive, right? You don't tell someone not to be offended if you're not going to be offensive. John is inviting, or Jesus is inviting John, inviting us on a path through our doubt. See, because the Greek word for offense is the word scandalon, which means to be scandalized. He's saying to John, you're offended that you don't see an axe, that you don't see me coming in judgment. You, Herod lives while you languish in prison. That's offensive. But don't let that offense lead you to reject me. Let that offense lead you to blessedness. Meaning deep spiritual fulfillment born of deepening trust. Jesus is offensive. His claims offensive. His view of humanity, offensive. The way he invites you and I to live and be in the world, offensive. And when we encounter the offense of Jesus, we'll either ignore it or explain it away. Well, my Jesus wouldn't say. My Jesus wouldn't do. My Jesus wouldn't want. But Jesus is saying, I am offensive. But sit in that offense, work through that offense, for on the other side of that offense is a blessedness born of deepening trust. See, many of us do not see the gospel changing, transforming our hearts because we don't have an offense of Jesus. We have a tame Jesus, a Jesus of our own making. Elizabeth Elliot is a great example, I think, of working through the offensiveness of Jesus to a blessedness born of deepening trust on the other side. Elliot was a Christian author and speaker who died just a few years ago. She was a sufferer. She was thrice widowed. Her first husband was killed on the mission field when he was trying to reach a tribe in Ecuador. He was speared to death. She and her husband were there to try and use their skills as linguists to translate the New Testament into the local dialect. Now, out of her experience, she wrote a book entitled No Graven Image. It's a fiction about a woman who's a linguist who gave up family, money, marriage to move into the South American rainforest and reach a tribe that had no written language and translate the New Testament into their dialect. And while she's there, she meets a man who knows their language as well as other languages, and so he's likely the only person on the entire earth who can help her with her life's work to translate the New Testament into this local dialect. And then they spend many years at this work, but at the end of the book, she ends up killing this man, her friend, with an injection of bad penicillin. Now, the tribe turns against her. They gather up all of her notes. They throw them in the river. It's all gone. Her life's work down the drain. No hope of starting again. And that's how the book ends. Now, after writing the novel, Elizabeth went on to be a seminary professor. One day she was telling her seminary students about how people responded to her book. 
How she got all this hate mail from Christians, from ministers, how the president of the seminary smugly told her that he'd kept her book off of lists of notable works. Why? Because they thought it to be heresy. There's no way that God would let a dedicated servant experience such pain, such disappointment. But that was her story. It's John the Baptist's story. Just a few chapters later, he's beheaded. It's offensive. How can we serve a God who won't protect his own? Be offended. But don't let that offense lead you to rejection. Let that offensiveness lead you to a blessedness born of a deepening trust. At the end of Eliot's book, there's this expression of blessedness, of deepening trust. A truth that I think if we grab the hold of would be crucial to navigating our disappointments, our disillusionments, our crushed expectations of God. Her character at the end says this. Now in the clear light of day, I see that God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If on the other hand he was God, he had freed me. For God is God, and if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and service. And I will find rest nowhere but in his will that is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he's up to. Out of her experience, Eliot is relaying to us a profound truth, that much of our doubt and disillusionment and disappointment in God arises because we're treating him like an accomplice, like an assistant, whose job it is to assist us in achieving the goals and plans of our lives. That is not God. God is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond our largest notions of what he's up to. God has deeply disappointed me many times in my life. I would hazard a guess that God has deeply disappointed every single person in this room. God has not lived up to our expectations. We may have wanted fire, but there was no fire. We may have wanted change in that situation right now, right then, and still nothing has changed. It's offended you. Sit in that offense. Work through that offense. For on the other side is a blessedness born of deepening trust. But to come to that place of trust, we must come to see that he is indeed trustworthy. In verse 7, John's messengers head back, and John turns to the crowd, a crowd that had overheard the doubt of John the Baptist. Maybe they're murmuring. Maybe John might be right. Yeah, yeah, where is the fire? Where's the axe? Herod still sits on the throne. The Romans still crush us. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? What did you go out into the desert to see? Jesus asks. Did you go out to see a reed bending in the wind? In other words, did you find in John someone who was pushed around by public opinion? No, he was rock solid. 
did you go to the desert to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? In other words, a one who travels in royal circles flattering the king? No, John's message was the same regardless of who he spoke to. And he's in prison for it. No, you went out to see a prophet. More than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is said, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me. Jesus there is pointing to a promise. There had been no prophet in Israel in over 400 years. The voice of God had been silent for 400 years. But the prophets had left the people with an expectation that the coming Messiah would be preceded by a prophet very much like Elijah. In fact, to this very day, when Jewish people celebrate the Passover, they will set out a table setting for Elijah. And at a certain point in the meal, the children will go to the door, open it, and call out for Elijah, Eliyahu, Eliyahu, Eliyahu. For Messiah's coming will be preceded by prophet like Elijah. After 400 years of silence, a voice speaks in the wilderness, bearing all the marks of Elijah, dressed like him, eats like him, talks like him. And the people en masse go out into the desert to hear his message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, Messiah is coming. But that is not where the connections to Elijah end. Elijah had his own moment of deep doubt. The book of Kings tells us that Elijah was pursued into the desert by King Ahab and his queen Jezebel, perhaps bearing the marks of King Herod and his new wife. And in the wilderness, he's complaining bitterly to God, I've been faithful to you. But all of your people, they've turned away from you. They've torn down your altars. They've killed all your prophets. And I am the only one left. Where is your wind to blow them all away? Where is an earthquake to swallow them up? Where is fire to consume them all? So God says to Elijah, go before the mountain. And he does. And a great howling wind blows but the Lord was not in the wind. And the earth trembles and shakes, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And a roaring fire descends, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then there's the sound of a whisper, the sound of silence. And the Lord was in the silence. Elijah, John, my friends, I do not come in power and strength, I come in weakness. If I came in power, if I came in judgment, if I came with fire, if I came with an axe, no one and nothing would be left, not even you. I came to make an end of sin, not in power, but in weakness. I came not to wield a spear, but to take a spear. I came not to met out judgment, but to receive judgment. I came not to take a crown by force, but to bear a crown of thorns. 
I came not to crush my enemies, but to be crushed by your enemies. I came not to put them to a cross, but to take them unto myself upon a cross. I do not come in power. I come in weakness. And in weakness, I will make a final end of sin and death. Are you the one, or should we look for another? Jesus points John and us in our doubts to a cross where out of his great and glorious love for us, he takes on our enemies of sin and death and by his resurrection destroys their power forever. We can trust him. Jesus, you are the one. There is no other. A word of praise closes our text He says, of anyone who's been born of a woman, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. For he has pointed to me, to my kingdom, to the glorious reign of the kingdom of God. Jesus, you are the one. There is no other. But the least in the kingdom, Jesus continues, you and I, all of us, are greater than John the Baptist. That is to say that the one who is filled with the Spirit the follower of Jesus, points with greater clarity to the kingdom of God than John the Baptist did. For as we are given over to the work of the Spirit in and through us, we point to his justice, his goodness, his love, his mercy in all we say and do and pray. Jesus, you are the one. There is no other. This Advent, we look back to Jesus' coming in weakness. A baby born in a manger, dying a death for us on a cross, rising again, ushering in a new creation, such that we now, this Advent, can look forward to a second Advent. His coming in fire, a refining fire, a fire that will cleanse the earth of everything that is wrong with it, setting up an eternal kingdom of light, of life, of love, and of peace. There is much to look forward to. Jesus, you are the one. There is no other. You are the one. There is no other. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.